Hello and welcome to episode number 74 of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. I want to thank you for joining me today for this episode. Like each and every episode, it's a pleasure to discover how the narrative of this podcast continues to develop each year, each episode, each story, which I think might have been my original goal, but if it isn't, it's certainly become the goal that I've become most aware of recently. And that's a fun experience for me. I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well. Stay tuned to the very end for all the ways that I let you know how to do that. In the meantime, regarding this episode, I'm looking at a few things right now. One, the, uh, the concept of format and how to develop a show. So with a few changes in mind, I decided to break this episode into a few segments. The first is stories that I am looking at or that caught my attention, either recently in the news or just in overall publication. Sometimes it can be stories that are very present, very in the moment. In other occasions, it might be stories that I've stumbled across, but are no longer as recent. In fact, if you can hear in the distance, there's a soft whine as a plane is completing the stages of its descent into a nearby San Francisco airport. And I would say that in many ways, the concept of finding stories that maybe weren't published recently, but still have relevance, would be similar to that now uh, soon-to-be-landing airplane. The process of its descent is not diminished by any one stage or by the completion of the overall process, but it's defined by each moment. And I think keeping that in mind is really going to be helpful for me when I'm looking at new stories as well as stories that were not published so recently, but likewise still have uh, the same kind of relevance or resonance. And maybe there's another R word I was trying to squeeze in there. However, when it comes to this week, I am looking at a few stories that really caught my attention. Uh, The first has to do with uh, Superman's voice, where it comes from, what it means, is it important? And why that has to uh, do with both a actor who portrayed Superman and a writer who has written the words that come out of Superman's voice in comics books published by DC Comics. Another story that I'm really intrigued by is a story about how mothers are now playing a very significant and I believe valuable role in the recent protests that we have heard about in the news, we have seen on television that have been broadcast live on platforms like Instagram and others, and how I think that the role of mothers could help provide not only uh, a new sense of security for protests, but also a greater sense of purpose and, hopefully, a different tone that will be reflected by the approach and treatment from law enforcement, especially those who are now intervening from a federal level, despite the request from local officials that it be handled by those who know the community best. 
I've got a few other stories along the way, and my last step in this episode is a project I'm working on in which my wife was really great in giving me this book, The Complete Beatles Songs, written by Steve Turner, that includes the story behind every track written by the Fab Four. How well I can actually match those up to each episode is going to be a fun little challenge. But sharing those stories with you and enjoying the fact that these are songs that I continue to enjoy more than 30 years after first hearing them, or some of them even more recently hearing them, but they have become favorites of mine. Over time, they have also been part of a soundtrack for the narrative of our country at different points when their relevance seems so closely tied to current themes and issues that we had faced and in many ways by the history uh, of repetition and the repetition of history we continue to experience. So this is episode number 74. Looking forward to sharing all these stories with you. Sit back, turn up the volume where you need to. It's time for our first story. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now for this next story, I was really struck by a conversation that seemed to be very important to a short-term news cycle, but seemed to have a much more profound effect on me. Warning, I'm in a bit of a squeaky chair, so if there is squeaking, that's just me in the chair. Maybe leaning back, maybe leaning forward, probably just trying to get comfortable. And thanks for understanding, it's just a squeaky chair. So when it comes to this story, I remember that I really enjoyed Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman in the 90s, because it gave a humorous take on Superman. It showed very uh, creative and fun um, inventive ways to use superpowers while also maintaining a very human alter ego. Superman and Clark Kent uh, were equal parts important to the storyline and development, which was actually about Clark Kent falling in love with Lois Lane and his uh, pursuit and eventual marriage to his soulmate. That portrayal was changed in my mind when I recently heard a story that Dean Cain had appeared on Fox News and in doing so made the statement that this was no longer a time when he, if he was portraying Superman now, would be allowed to say truth, justice, in the American way. To which a writer from DC Comics named Tom King, and who I've spoken about on this show before, chose to respond by pointing out that in a book he'd written, Superman Up in the Sky, he had a conversation between Superman and legendary soldier Sergeant Rock in which that very phrase is referenced. Now, in the writer's approach, it's not always necessary to quote something verbatim for it to have the desired impact or effect or to reference a source material that is the inspiration and that is being referred to without being stated. I'm actually reminded of the fact 
that there was a great importance placed on this when it came to Marvel's uh, MCU cinematic universe and the Avengers movies, in which case there would be many times that the famous comic book phrase, Avengers Assemble, would be hinted at, but never actually stated. And this was reserved for greatest impact in the final chapter of the most recent story arc cycle. And it was really well done, in my opinion. Now, because of that, there's an understanding that you don't just use phrases like that, or at least my belief is that you don't use phrases like that every chance you get because they can sort of diminish what the desired importance is and the relevance of those who said it first, how they said it, why they said it, and the time in which it was being said. So keeping all that in mind, I was drawn to a Twitter statement and a page that I actually have in a Superman Up in the Sky issue that I think is really quite gorgeous. And it's a story about Superman ending up in a different time period when Sergeant Rock and his soldiers are fighting and not remembering who he is throughout the story, but being scared and relying on Rock and his experience and the soldiers around him. And then regaining his memory and having this great conversation with Sergeant Rock before he leaves. And how that conversation leads to Sergeant Rock, who's known for being just a gruff, grunt soldier who does what he has to, does what he can, stating that he believes in Superman and that the reference that's made building up to that statement is this idea of what Superman stands for, and also what truth, justice, and even the American way means now compared to what it meant when it was previously said by Superman and how it was said and the time frame in which it was said. So keeping all that in mind, I thought this was a really great writer response. And I was also intrigued by the fact that keeping all of this in mind also means that when it comes to characters like Superman, there's been more than one person, more than one actor to pull on the cape and the uniform to wear the symbol on their chest, whether it's in movies, television, even animated, and who's speaking for them. Because in television and in movies, you can generally see the actor who is speaking and using their voice to portray Superman. But in other media, like radio where Superman first appeared as far as uh, a medium outside of comics or in more recent animated projects that voice has been portrayed by someone who is using the voice to embody the best qualities or the persona of Superman so I was really intrigued by this idea and I got a chance to do a little bit of reading and some writing about it and what struck me the most was that there is someone behind all of those words being spoken by the actor, by the person portraying Superman. And that's the writers. If you go back in time, the first voice of Superman was Jerry Siegel and his partner, Joe Schuster. Together, they created the voice of Superman. And what they did was define a mythos that still has impact and relevance today. Otherwise, it wouldn't have created this conversation. And yet, Many actors who have come along have represented that voice, but in each case, the words that they were reciting were written by 
the many legendary writers who have told the great story of Superman. And I'm talking about names that almost every comic fan knows, not just because of their work on Superman, but because of all the other projects they've done in addition to their work on Superman. Guys like John Byrne, uh, Mark Wade, Alan Moore, Gardner Fox, Marv Wolfman, George Perez, recently uh, Tom King, Brian Michael Bendis. There are numerous writers who have taken up their pen sat down at a computer typewriter and written the words for Superman and his stories. And because of that, I was actually reminded that no matter who it is that's speaking those words, when it comes to who is actually first presenting the voice of Superman, it's the writers. So I'm actually curious now what that means for what Dean Cain was saying, because if there's a writer who is writing the words for that script, who's to say that they can't actually write that now? And I'm actually intrigued to see how it is that the next media representation of Superman, of which we will get a chance to see because there will be a new series as a spinoff of Supergirl about the life of Superman, of Lois Lane, and of their two boys. That could be a great opportunity to see a response, which has been actually a, a moment that I've had a chance to see, at least in projects like Supergirl, that address current themes or conversations that are occurring in the overall national and international conversation. And with that, I'm intrigued to see what that might provide either in that series or from another media or medium that chooses to answer this question and to show us what that phrase, truth, justice, and the American way means now to Superman and also how and why he would be compelled to say it in an upcoming story. But more than anything, I think what I'm struck with is the fact that this all started with a voice and a phrase that now has taken on new meanings and new value and importance for a myriad of reasons. And that through that, there's an opportunity to look to the writers who made that moment possible, created enough impact behind it for to have the resonance now and also to be that inspiration for future writers who are looking for ways that they can talk about poignant relevant stories and at the same time attempt to create that same degree of resonance and impact i think when you're talking about the superman voice like so many things it seems impossible and then he makes it either possible or look like there was never a reason to doubt. Curious to hear your thoughts as well about this idea of the Superman voice. Now, Superman ended up being rather thematic for me uh, regarding the uh, past week or two and how I was looking at content. Because not long after I took a look at and wrote about the Superman voice, I was really intrigued by the fact that during my searches, I had come across a number of stories talking about how there 
has been conversation with and about actor Michael B. Jordan to play Calvin Ellis, who is a Superman that not all fans might be aware of. He's actually the Superman of Earth-23, and that there's an opportunity in an upcoming movie uh, called The Flash that might be based around an event known as Flashpoint. Now, DC Comics fans know about Flashpoint because it was part of a rebirth, restart process that DC Comics is still affected by and still addressing in its storylines. And the concept came about when The Flash decided to go back and change the most tragic moment in his life, which was the death of his mother at the hands of his enemy, the Reverse Flash. The original death led to uh, the accusation that his father was responsible, his imprisonment, and a very turbulent youth and childhood for young Barry Allen. But when Barry Allen chose to make this change, the ripple effects throughout the world were so catastrophic that he had to painfully find a way to bring things back to the way they had been, or at least that's what he attempted. And even though he was able to undo his own actions, prevent himself from stopping the death of his own mother, the effects that were experienced were important. One in that they addressed an idea that could finally be shown on movie screens, which is one of, I believe, DC Comics' greatest weapons, and that happens to be its multiverse this concept that we all exist in one version of ourselves here, but that in many other variations of the present world, separated from us through nothing more than a vibrational frequency, we are different. The world is different. And through subtle changes, so many possibilities of our existence are possible. I really like this idea. I actually believe that the multiverse is something we create with every decision we make because the possibility that we didn't choose could be another reality just like the possibility that we actually choose and the reality we experience and believe is the one and only possibility or reality it can get a little confusing and sometimes it feels like you're just trying to take a bunch of spaghetti and twist enough of it around a fork that you can actually get a mouthful and feel like there's some substance there. DC Comics has done a much better job in its comics portraying the concepts behind a multiverse than I probably did in explaining it to you right now. And I'm intrigued by this opportunity because one of the big strengths of DC Comics and its multiverse are the many Earths that make up the multiverse. And on Earth-23, the story of Calvin Ellis is the story of a man who is very different from Clark Kent, who is the mild-mannered reporter and alter ego of Superman on the prime Earth as we know it and as he's portrayed, been portrayed in a lot of movies and television, as I was talking about in the last segment. Calvin Ellis instead... Uh, followed the path of Superman and was sent to Earth. But he was raised by a poor family and taught to fight for what's right in a way that inspired him to eventually become the President of the United States while also being the Superman of that Earth and universe. 
Now, whether or not this is something that Michael B. Jordan can portray on screen is still part of a very long conversation. I'm reminded of this as yet another plane is flying by and how so often both a flight, its ascent, and its descent can feel like very long stretches of time just based on how little or much occurs during that event. Keeping all of that in mind, I really enjoyed a quote that Michael B. Jordan shared with MTV.com when he said, I've been rumored to play Morpheus to Superman to Power Rangers and everything in between. So it's like I'm kind of used to the rumors I'm playing something. But anything that I do dive into has to be done the right way. It has to be full of authenticity, which is something I really appreciate because I believe that an authentic approach is the most valuable way to take on any project. And I'm intrigued by this opportunity because right now there have been stories expressing doubt on the part of Warner Brothers for the current Superman, Henry Cavill, to be the lead in its next Superman film. While that discussion is occurring, there's also the chance to have a second conversation, one that can provide Michael B. Jordan and Calvin Elvis a chance to shine on screen, and in doing so, also show Warner Brothers that there are many stories about Superman that can be told, and perhaps even a story in which both of these Superman can be involved. Along the way, Fans will get the chance to see how many different ways Superman can exist and just what it would look like if um, Superman was the president of the United States, was black, was uh, strong, strident, and representative of all the values that we love, and yet at the same time provided a different tone because of his life experiences, which no doubt differed from Clark Kent's. But to what degree could be told in the stories that we've had a chance to experience in comics and can now be shown on screen? I'm also struck by this idea because I think the upcoming Flash movie, if it does base itself on Flashpoint and introduces the multiverse, would be a great opportunity to tell more than one Superman story because there have been many Supermen. Uh, there have been a few black supermen, and each one has a story that can highlight some of the best qualities that DC Comics has captured in its books, and that I think fans are ready to experience. There can be more than one Superman, and it's why I was really inspired to write this article on this Earth Superman's name is Calvin Ellis, because I believe a story about that Earth, a story about the many different Earths that can show us how events played out and how important it is for us to consider the path not taken, the things that have been avoided, or the opportunities that we might still have an opportunity to make a choice to consider or embrace. Uh, this is one that I'm happy to wrap both my arms around and look forward to either greater possibility, likelihood, or eventuality somewhere in the future. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Comfort is such a specific thing. And yet at the same time, 
there are shared comforts, uh, things that large numbers of population, community, country will and can do find comforting. <laughs> For example, when you tune into this episode, much like all the other episodes that preceded it, it's fairly likely that you will hear my French bulldog, Bruno, snoring in the background, softly, sometimes loudly, sometimes in a way that feels overbearing. It's a byproduct. For me, it's part of having a dog. It's part of knowing that the dog is comfortable. It's part of being a partner in a relationship where I take care of him and he lets me know that he's comfortable when he's relaxed and snoring like that. Others tuning in might not find that as comforting. Providing comfort, in my mind, is a quality that should be and sometimes is associated with heroes. When it comes to providing comfort, very few are as good at it as mothers, which is why I like following up these two stories about Superman with a story about mothers and a project known as the Wall of Moms. They made an appearance most recently at the protests in Portland, Oregon. They can be recognized by their yellow shirts while chanting a phrase, don't shoot your mother. They say this while they face off with federal agents and provide a buffer between the agents and the protesters. They are trying to create a new tone and parameter within which the protests can still occur, but hopefully the episodes of violence can decrease, diminish, or perhaps disappear altogether. In articles I've seen written about them, whether it's the Washington Post or their own website, they are a new group, a fledgling collective as it's been described by the Post. They formed in a very short time, roughly around the middle of July, and they are now developing chapters in cities around the country, from St. Louis to New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, which is important because there has been recent news that the federal agents who have been deployed to Portland are in the process of being withdrawn but with the express purpose of being deployed elsewhere. Some states, some cities that have been mentioned include Chicago in Illinois and Albuquerque in New Mexico. A visit to their website is an introduction to their commitment to Black Lives Matter and, and a first of many announcements designed to let mothers know where they will be gathering, what they are trying to do, and what their goals are. Among them, that they listen to black leaders. They're here to follow direction behind the scenes and in a public capacity. That their goal is to push the media to turn the focus where it belongs, which is black leaders. And which is why they choose to use white bodies and not white voices to communicate this message. It's described that Bev's vision was that moms would take some physical blows and loved ones, in turn, will be spared. 
And it asks for mothers to summon a mom warrior spirit. Especially in commitment or reference to their own children's. To ask the police, the fed, federal agents, or feds as they're described on the website, to use their physical bodies as a distraction for that violence, or at least as a different place to target their anger and frustration. Now, the article from the Washington Post describes that many of the mothers are struck either with projectiles, weapons, or caught in the clash of gas that can be deployed. And because of that, how there is a risk and a concern. And yet, at the same time, there's a struggle to balance being afraid with doing the right thing. Now, what I love about this story is that it reminds me how from the earliest age, I heard that there were legends or folk tales and anecdotes about mothers who, when they saw their children threaten, could lift a multi-ton vehicle off of their child's body, could stand up to violent predators who are in the midst of an attack, whether it's a mountain lion, a bear, or some other ferocious creature, and how in those moments the strength displayed by a mother can be attributed to things like adrenaline, um, protection, fight or flight, but also how in so many ways it's a wonderful example of heroism. Depending on how it's being displayed, you could even say superheroism. They are not unlike civic members of our community who've taken on civic roles, whether as firefighters, police officers, or in other areas of our community, and in doing so take on a risk that most of us would happily allow them to take on for us. And yet because of that, we are shown an example of the best of ourselves, what we are capable of, and perhaps what we can strive to become, perhaps not in the way we see being displayed before us, but in a way that reflects that same desire, that same commitment, that same compassion met with passion. It's amazing to consider what possibilities might develop out of this original concept and how some time ago groups like Black Lives Matter were not given the credence that they hold now. That with time, the strength of an organization can be defined by the continued pursuit of its goals through its actions. And I really think that when it comes to this story, what I'm curious the most about is how we will see Wall of Moms portrayed and demonstrating their actions and their commitment in cities around the country where it's anticipated we will see federal agents again. I'm curious, as I'm sure 
now my dog Bruno is with that bark, whether or not this will provide any comfort to the tension that has been so prolific at so many of these protests. Perhaps the common sense of a mother can provide not only comfort, but more possibilities that can change the tone and the perception of protests. Now this next story is one that really caught my attention and in a way that was unexpected. It's a story that I saw on the NASA channel, which because of the type of person I am is the perfect place for me to tune into when I simply want to tune out to the rest of the world. And when I do this, it, it becomes something that for the most part is a great way to learn about something I most likely did not know since I've always enjoyed the concept of space, but I've never invested a huge amount of my time studying the ins and outs of space travel, spacecraft, or the roles of the many people who make space travel possible. But as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed opportunities from programs like the ones offered on the NASA channel that allow me to gain a bit of insight and therefore a greater understanding and appreciation for how much work it takes to go to space. I'm also intrigued because there's been a lot of conversation about space, whether it's the Space Force program proposed by the current administration, the parody show on Netflix, or why we are suddenly considering more investment in the idea of space. Some suggestions which have included the idea that it's now been opened up to corporations and those with a financial um, stake or claim. And after whatever considerations need to be made, they are now a part of the uh, emphasis or push, or that there's a greater understanding that perhaps there needs to be secondary places for people to go, given the strain that the current population has placed on the planet we live on, and that is struggling to allow us to live on it sustainably or comfortably or for an extended period of time. But with that, I was really intrigued by this idea that NASA has about looking at its past and doing its best to understand why it's important. Now, the thing I like about the Lessons Learned Project is that it looks at not only success, but failure. And it does so with an intention of trying to understand where it was that things went wrong. One of the examples is a concept known as normalization of deviance. That with time, there had been a recognition that certain wear and tear was to be expected for shuttles traveling out into space and returning. The same could be said of booster rockets and other elements necessary to get a vehicle from the ground into space and return again safely. And yet those acceptances actually led to issues that were created for many of 
those participating in the program. Issues that would eventually lead to some very dire consequences. There is a tragic history in NASA's pages that tell the story of those who bravely gave their lives and how those lives were lost, sometimes due to mechanical failure, sometimes due to unexpected consequences. And in each one of those situations, a lesson was learned. Examples can be taken from things like O-rings that had wear and tear and how the loss of the Challenger helped engineers and those involved with investigating problems and preventing them from occurring in the future, why that wear and tear was important and what should be done to prevent it to ensure greater safety and try to prevent a tragedy. The same was learned from uh, the wear and tear and the loss of foam uh, in Colombia. But as it's described by the experts in this program, this was something that was normalized. And how keeping this in mind is a way that they can examine their practices, look for areas where deviation is occurring, and ask why it's occurring, and if the deviation is actually something that should be acceptable. Because if it isn't, then there's a great opportunity to prevent possible catastrophe down the road. And how this approach has in turn been applied to industries like the CDC, uh, nuclear industry, um, and providing a series of what they call tour stops that introduce a diversity of voice, which is something that can be really important when trying to analyze a problem. If you're not considering all 360 degrees and then spinning it around again for 720 degrees of consideration, you're not giving the problem all the consideration it should be due. And if you do that, if you're willing to admit where things went wrong, acknowledge the why, how, or other causalities associated with it, and then with that full admittance, work towards a solution, transparency becomes an opportunity to improve, to do things better, to get it right, to hopefully foresee potential concerns and do something about them before they turn into a tragedy that could have been avoided. Tragedies can't always be avoided, but when they occur, they offer an opportunity to learn from them. I think this is really important, not only in industries, but in our own lives. We don't do things perfectly. It's part of our nature. We're imperfect creatures, even the best of us. And depending on who you are, you have an idea of where on the spectrum of the best of us you fall. But falling is a part of the learning process. And all the mistakes we make, all the challenges we face, all the failures that can sometimes be an easy thing to get down about are also huge opportunities to learn what we're capable of, what we need in order to accomplish our goals, where and why we might have fallen short, and what we can do about it. It's not an easy thing, and it's one that comes with, I'm sure, at least in my experience, a great deal of humility and a degree that you're working at with something like NASA 
humility must be a everyday occurrence. Yet from that humility, lives are saved. Futures are changed. Experiments that could have been lost have an opportunity to complete a cycle that tells us what the answers might mean and what we can learn. NASA's Lessons Learned program is an example for what you can do when you've experienced something that is traumatic and how you can find ways to move forward by looking at the causes and what can be done about them. Sometimes it's simply acknowledging where your limitations might lie and how you can address them. But other times, they are a chance to find a way forward, to learn, to grow, and in the process, to become better. I know I'm looking forward to the next opportunity when I can learn something from a lesson. Maybe share it here with you next time. Now it's time for that new segment I was mentioning. One that's based on a book that my wife gave me. I got it right here in my hands. You're going to hear some flopping of covers and pages. It's called The Complete Beatles Songs, the stories behind every track written by the Fab Four. Includes full lyrics for the first time, and it's written by Steve Turner. My goal is to see just how many of these great stories I can share at the end of each podcast. Sometimes trying to maybe pull it all together. Although in some cases, I think my natural desires might draw me to too many songs too often. So we'll see how well this blends. But thanks for joining me for this first try. For this week, this episode, I chose to go with a uh, story behind the song Lady Madonna. I was really struck because it's described as being the way forward for the Beatles regarding their sound after they had completed some pretty complex projects like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Magical Mystery Tour. And what they decided to do was to look at an old hit, a song called Bad Penny Blues, which was a 1956 hit in Britain. And then they also found that if they went a little bit further, they could find uh, connections to a previous work um, that was bluesy and, as they called it, skiffly. And it was actually performed by a uh, performer named Dan Burley and his skiffle boys. And I'm also intrigued by the fact that in order to figure out how the sound was created, they relied on Ringo, who had been a professional drummer before he joined the Beatles. And he explained how that sound effect was created with brushes. So this, in turn, was the basis behind the song. And as soon as I began reading through this part, I could immediately hear uh, the sort of, you know, quick tempo, light, almost uh, jaunty or um, carefree piano opening that goes with Lady Madonna. And then it moves from the story of how the sound of the song was created into the story about how the lyrics and the title were created. And apparently the original version that had been told was that Paul had been thinking of Lady Madonna and that um, 
the original concept of the Virgin Mary was something that a lot of mothers in Liverpool, where he grew up, had identified. And then he started to look at the fact that Madonna became this idea that was also really closely tied to him for motherhood. And he was really struck by the fact that there were these questions that he couldn't answer. Like, how did they do it? How do they have a, a baby at their breast? And how do they get the time to feed them? Where do they get the money? How do they do this thing that women do that's called motherhood? That's just sometimes amazing when you consider all the different pieces and aspects that go with the word motherhood or being a mother. But it turns out there's even more to the story because later... Uh, <laughs> Paul was at a Greenwich Village club watching Jimi Hendrix perform. And he was with an American singer named Richie Havens, who witnessed a woman coming over and asking Paul if the song was, you know, really about America. And he paused and said, no, actually, I was inspired because I've been looking at this magazine, which the story does a nice job of hunting down. It was a National Geographic from 1965. And how Paul says that he saw this woman with a baby and underneath it, it said Mount Madonna. And he said, nope, Lady Madonna. And in his mind, that's that's the image that he had while he was uh, writing the song. And it's a really striking image. It's a powerful moment where uh, a mother is looking over her children very sternly. Um, she's got at least one right in front of her, one behind her. She's holding this stick with a, a command and authority. And there's also a baby hanging off of her hip, uh, suckling on her breasts and looking at the camera as though it's just something else to observe while, while the baby's feeding. And I, I really got a kick out of the fact that there's two sides to this story and that this song, which was released in 1968... Went to number one in Britain, but never made it higher than four in the United States. I was really intrigued by all of the pieces that came from this story, not only from the sound that created it and the uh, effect using brushes, but then later how the basis of the lyrics and the title seemed to shift or just contain uh, a number of different either definitions, examples, or references I think if I can think about how many stories I've also seen that happen, it makes for a really powerful effect because the emotions and the weight is very powerful. And yet between the many stories, equally balanced and often to great effect. At least uh, I believe so in the song Lady Madonna and as it's described with this story. And with that, the book comes to a close. And that's our final segment today. And that brings this episode of Storytelling with Seth, episode number 74, to a close. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate every episode that you tune into. I hope that you enjoyed the changes to the format and the recent edition of the Beatles song story in history. I'm curious to get your feedback and also to have an understanding of how each of these components fits into this idea that 
seems to always be evolving behind storytelling with set. As far as letting me know what you're thinking, how to reach out, you can always find me on, let's see, the internet. You can find my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller. You can find me on social media. Instagram is Seth the Writer. You can check out my dogs who are pretty cute, Bruno and Fiji. You can always go to Twitter where I am one more singleton. That's the number one and M-O-R-E and my last name Singleton. You can always find me if you tag me with a storytelling with Seth tag or for the most part, let me know through one of those channels how you would like to talk because I'm always curious to hear what thoughts you have, what questions you might want to ask, ideas you might want to share, and more importantly, if there's a story you know that you think should be here on Storytelling with Seth. I love the idea of sharing the stories of others, whether it's through an interview or just getting the chance to summarize the best pieces that we can share so that others can learn more about them and enjoy that information, explore it, or do that wonderful thing that happens when you hear a great story, which is find yourself thinking about it, sharing it with others. I appreciate every one of you who has shared storytelling with Seth, with someone you know, and I'm looking forward to my next chance to sharing a story with you. Until next time.